I like to quote Song of Songs to my bride while doing a Charlton Heston impression. I tell her, the curves of your thighs are like jewelry crafted by the master. <laughs> your belly is a mound of wheat surrounded by lilies. And it's, it's something I think that husbands at Highlands should imitate, walk up, give her a quote from Song of Songs, and you got to say it like a man who has been smitten by the fire of the mountain. And then, and, but then there's one important rule. You have to follow it up with a genuine compliment that is of equal intensity, loving her like Christ loved the church. Otherwise, you're just making fun of the Bible, which is dangerous. I, yesterday, I told my bride, your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. <laughs> and just stare at her for a while after you say it. And she, she didn't miss a moment. And she said, so let it be written, so let it be done. So if you could see some videos on social media this week of husbands quoting Song of Songs to their brides, followed by a genuine compliment, that would make for a really fun week. Our small group curriculum really is in the driver's seat of which passages we preach from our platforms at Highlands. And this week, our small group curriculum is in chapter 5, verses 6 through 16. So I'll give you some context from there, and then I'll let the small group curriculum take it from there. But I want to introduce something from it that will also help clarify what I've referred to as the chiastic structure of the book. All right, we talked about that briefly before. I'll expound upon it here. Look at chapter 5. I have come to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gather my myrrh with spices. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. I drink my wine with my milk. We know what this is talking about. Right? This is a Hebrew kiss. Eat, friends, drink, be intoxicated with caresses. The woman speaks. I was sleeping, but my heart was awake. A sound, my love was knocking. The man speaks. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is drenched with dew, my hair with droplets of the night. We were just, we saw the wedding in chapter four and the wedding night in chapter four, verse 16 and chapter five, verse one, some of what we just read. Everything in this book so far has been the loviest of doviest writings ever. But here is, here's their first conflict. Chapter, uh, chapter five, verse three, the woman speaks. I have taken off my clothing. How can I put it back on? I have washed my feet. How can I get them dirty? My love thrust his hand through the opening and my feelings were stirred for him. I rose to open for my love. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers flowing with, with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my love, but my love had turned and gone away. My heart sank because he had left. I sought him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. And in small group, you'll be able to talk more about this. You'll see that she encounters the guards in the very next verse. And this is parallel to something that comes up elsewhere in the book. There are two encounters with the guards, roughly equidistant, one from the beginning of the book and the other from uh, the end of the book. Marriages all start with a honeymoon, which means a sweet month. Honeymoons originally were a month long. It's amazing. They always start with the honeymoon and then comes conflict, but they arrive when they mature at commitment. And 
this commitment phase is where intimacy can grow and grow and grow over time. In chapter five, the husband reaches out to his bride. And then in verse three, she responds in Hebrew poetry, I have a headache. And they have this first conflict. She regrets rejecting him and goes to seek after him and things go badly. She gets apprehended by Paul Blart. And we're roughly now, uh, we're right before the very center of the book, the apex of the chiastic structure. All right, for more on this, let's go to our, our, our chapter we're going to focus on today, chapter 8. If only I could treat you like my brother, one who nursed at my mother's breasts, I would find you in public and kiss you and no one would scorn me. This is the reason for all of the language elsewhere in the book, my sister, my bride. There was nothing wrong with brother or sister giving one another a kiss on the cheek in public, but it was scorned to see romantic lovers who had yet to be married kiss in public. And so she was wishing that he were her brother or they could pretend like she was his brother so she could kiss him and nobody would scorn her. And she's going she's gonna to draw upon more language that was foreshadowed elsewhere in the book. You're going to see now language describing springtime. And this is actually the second springtime that has come up in the song. Look at verse two. I would lead you. I would take you to the house of my mother who taught me. I would give you spiced wine to drink from the juice of my pomegranate. May his left hand be under my head and his right arm embrace me. This is a direct direct verbatim refrain of what was written, I believe in chapter two, verse six. And then what follows is a, is a direct verbatim reprise of what came up in, in chapter two, verse seven, and also in chapter three, verse five. Young women of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. She was saying this to the chorus, the young women, the daughters of Jerusalem, elsewhere in the book, before the wedding day. And now she says the same exact thing after the wedding day. First, she's there with her companions and she is committed, man, she's committed to pursue holiness until her wedding day. And she's charging her, her fellow daughters of Jerusalem to join her in that way. And now as a married woman herself, she reissues the charge saying that it was worth it. Now she is a married woman speaking once again to the daughters of Jerusalem. I charge you, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. In verse five, the young women, the chorus speaks again. Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on the one she loves? Now, see, they were there. They were present at the beginning in the chapter when they saw her fall in love with Solomon. And now here they are. They, know, they already know the answer to the rhetorical question they're asking. They, now they see the two of them together and they're rejoicing in it. I awakened, the woman says, under the apricot, apricot tree. There your mother conceived you. There she conceived and gave you birth. The apricot tree imagery evokes what she spoke before elsewhere in the book when she described him as an apricot tree among other trees in, in chapter two, verse three. Now in Song of Songs, chapter two, verses 11 through 13, we see that spring has arrived in the setting of the musical. Here's chapter two, verses 11 through 13. For now the winter is past, the rain has ended and gone away, the blossoms appear in the countryside, the time of singing has come, and the turtle dove's cooing is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, the blossoming vines give off their fragrance. Arise, my darling, come away, my beautiful one. 
I think what would make for like a really funny t-shirt that would really only make sense to people who are in deep Christian culture is a, is a t-shirt with a turtle on it that's cooing because the King James version of the Bible, this Hebrew word hatoru was, was not translated turtle dove, but just turtle. The cooing of the turtle was heard in our land. So my skeptical friend, if you likewise have come upon this critique of all of Christianity, because Song of Songs says that turtles can coo, all of Christianity is debunked and Jesus didn't exist. Now you understand where the discrepancy came from. This is chapter two's description of a spring day. And now we have another spring day here in the latter half of the book, which means that the musical transpires over the course of one year from springtime to springtime. In springtime, they fall in love. In springtime, they are celebrating their marriage. Watch how the themes of Song of Songs then mature over time, because initially the couple is extolling the virtues of the other. He is describing how incredible she is, and she's describing how incredible he is. But now some of the same language comes back in the latter half of the book on the downward slope of the chiastic structure. And now they're extolling love itself, describing love itself. I mean, they were infatuated with one another in the beginning of the book. They go through conflict in the middle. And now as they are married to one another, they are extolling the virtues of love itself. Right? Drawing upon the, the, the Hebrew term ahava, which is really intense kind of love. They describe love this way in verse six. Set me as a seal on your heart, the woman says. As a seal on your arm. Now other people see it. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as unrelenting as Sheol. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. You cannot buy it. You cannot quench it. Love is an indomitable fire, they say. We'll talk more about these verses as we close. Some of the more confusing imagery comes up next, but I want to address now the chiastic structure of the book. Take a look at this graphic. Now, this is a very scaled down version of a more detailed graphic that is available as you fill out a Connect card. But you can see some of the basic themes that appear at the beginning and they reappear at the end. And then where the book progresses in the next section reappears in the penultimate section toward the end of the book. And then even within the third and fourth and fifth sections of this chiastic structure, these sections themselves are chiastic, which is fascinating. I took the CSB study Bible's outline of the book of Song of Songs and then modified it because there are also there's some things in that uh, not included in that outline, like verbatim recitations of the exact same words three times in the book, all appearing uh, dispersed and, and equidistant one from the other. It's really fascinating. We start in the garden. We have this, this springtime. We have this longing in springtime. And then in the second spring day here in the second half of the book, there is fulfillment in springtime. What they were longing for in the beginning, they are fully satisfied in now here at the end. We have the brothers in the vineyard who appear at the beginning. And now the brothers in the vineyard come back up again here in the final chapter. 
And right at the very center of the whole book is the wedding processional leading up uh, at the end of chapter three, and then the wedding day as Solomon looks at his bride through her veil in chapter four, and then the wedding night, the very end of chapter four, the very beginning of chapter five. And so we've started with springtime and the vineyard, and now we're ending with springtime and the vineyard and the brothers whom she named in chapter one saying, my, my mother's sons forced me to work in the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have neglected. <clears throat> you can tell there's some tension there between her and her brothers. She's going to, we're actually gonna hear the brothers chime in now in the very next verse, chapter eight, verse eight. Our sister is young, she has no breasts. So this is like a J.J. Abrams flashback. What will we do for our sister on the day she is spoken for, foretelling the wedding day that we saw in chapter four? If she is a wall, we will build a silver barricade on her. If she is a door, we will enclose her with cedar planks. She replies, I am a wall and my breasts like towers. So in his eyes, I have become like one who finds peace. Jesse, what in the world is this book? Let's interpret the imagery. These brothers who were jerks to her, forcing her into the family business with a vineyard that they actually leased from Solomon. Stay tuned, you'll see more about that in the closing chapter. They lease the vineyard from Solomon and they make their sister work in it. And whether their intentions were noble or not, or whether they were hypocritical in doing this or not, or legalistic or what have you, they said that their sister, before her wedding day, while she was still young, they committed that they would either adorn her with silver if she were like a wall, meaning she, she remained chaste until uh, she is spoken for, the day she is spoken for, see verse eight, or if she would be like a door that opens and closes, do you get what the metaphor is suggesting here? They said that they would put a barricade. They, they, would, they would rather put cedar planks around her to enclose her. So they said that if she is a wall, if she's to remain chaste, then they would adorn her with silver and remain her protectors. But if she were to be promiscuous, then they would seek to enclose her and trap her in. This is why, based on their metaphor, she's either going to be like a wall or she's going to be like a door. And then her very next reply in verse 10 is, I am a wall. She insists that she is the latter of the two options in her brother's crude metaphor. She says, I am a wall. And then she takes their own metaphor and she elevates her own virtue even beyond that in defending herself. She, uh, she says, I am a wall and my breasts are like towers. So she can in good conscience defend herself. Some of the tension that was set in chapter one between the Shulamite woman and her brothers comes back here as she defends her own honor, insisting that she has been like a wall. She is deserving of the, of the, the silver that they promised in their metaphor to ascribe to her, but we don't see them do that. And now in verse 11, you're gonna see a premise come up for a parable that will actually be used both in Isaiah and in the gospels, it is the parable of the owner of a vineyard who leases it out to tenant farmers. It appears in Song of Songs, it appears in Isaiah, and it appears in the gospel of Matthew. Watch this. Solomon, the woman is speaking, owned a vineyard in Baal Hamon. 
He leased the vineyard to tenants. Each was to bring for his fruit 1,000 pieces of silver. I have my own vineyard, she says. The 1,000 are for you, Solomon, but 200 for those who take care of its fruits. So evidently, at least in my interpretation, feel free to disagree on this. I believe that the brothers were the tenants. The brothers were the ones who leased the vineyard from Solomon. And because she was working in the vineyard, she meets Solomon. Or some interpreters believe that Solomon arranged the whole thing. Seeing her, leasing the vineyard to her brothers, knowing that she would work there, and then showing up at the very beginning of chapter one. So it's kind of the big reveal that all the while Solomon was the architect behind their meeting. And then he takes her away from her brothers, from her family that did not fully appreciate her. You'll see that the original charge is 1000 pieces of silver for Solomon's fruit. And then she says in verse 12, the 1000 are for you, Solomon. So she has not only literally physically cared for the vineyard that her brothers charged her to look over, but now her own vineyard belongs completely to Solomon with proper appreciation, with some degree of forgiveness and respect for her brothers. Though they were jerks to her, they get their due. They get their 200. Solomon, however, gets the 1,000. She is leaving her family behind. She is cleaving to her husband. This is something that's missing often in marriages. I, I cannot count the number of times that I've tried to counsel. I've, I've tried to counsel couples whose conflicts have arisen because one party in the marriage is still trying to cling to the family of their birth. Genesis 2, 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. The two become one. That you would leave your father and mother is integral to the very opening of the primary verse that gets recited over and over again throughout scripture, defining the basis for marriage itself. The very institution established by God right there in Eden, which as we've seen in our study of Ephesians is a picture of the gospel where this husband is a stand-in representing Christ. And while this woman who represents Christ, of course, in her own walk, in her own life, in her own mission, in her own evangelistic walk, she, she plays the part of the church, the bride of Christ in the context of the marriage. So the husband and wife are a picture of Christ and the church. See Ephesians chapter five, verses 22 through 33. When somebody is newly married and still, still, prioritizes that relationship with a mom and a dad, siblings or friends from their past life before marriage in a way that would eclipse their relationship with their new spouse, conflict is born. I've seen this, I've seen this. When you are married, you have entered into the first institution God ever created. This is a covenant relationship before God. And the two of you are now one flesh. That means you've got to put the appropriate perspective of your relationship with your spouse as superseding your relationships with your own birth parents, your previous life. This is, this is now a new family that has been born from that family. You don't cut ties and stiff arm your old family and reject them and neglect them. Rather, your marriage is to be paramount. It's a, it's a sweet thing. It's a good thing if 
sometimes, especially if young couples who live in the same town as their mom and dad can move away for a while because it forces you to get into that bubble. When my bride and I were newlyweds and we, uh, I bought us you know, a, a little house and it was like 10 or 15 minutes away from both of our parents. At one point, man, I don't even know what we were in conflict about, but my bride got mad, drove to her parents' house. Her dad said, nope, nope, you go back home. You resolve it. I know you're mad at him. You go set it straight. When you live in a city by yourselves, you, you can't do that as well. You can get on the phone, but you, you, you're forced to work it out. You're forced to resolve the conflict. You're forced, you're forced to acknowledge wrongdoing and apologize for it. You're forced to then forgive and pardon and move on and then watch the relationship actually become stronger as a result. Don't let your in-laws meddle in your marriage. I've seen how that causes conflict. In, in Song of Songs, she is, she is giving a gracious yet sharpened rebuke to her brothers. They get their 200, you get your credit, but Solomon gets the 1,000. She is bonded to her husband now forever. And, and he has saved her from the laborious work in the vineyard that she was charged with by her brothers before, the same brothers who appointed themselves guardians of her chastity. There's another statement that she makes after this though. She says, I am a wall, my breasts are towers. She's saying that I am the second of the two metaphors you guys propose that I might be. And moreover, I am more than that, like towers. But then there's a second sentence there. Did you catch it? It's in verse 10. So in his eyes, I have become like one who finds peace. So in my husband's eyes, I have become one who finds peace. My husband can attest to the fact that I am at peace. Right, you guys had this, this plan to make me work in the vineyard and, and guard my chastity, but you know what? I'm more than a wall. I'm like a tower. I, I saved my virtue. I pursued holiness. And now I'm with my husband and he can tell you that I am at peace. There is peace in their marital relationship. I think this further contributes to the interpretation that Solomon is the author and he wrote it about his first bride. So in his eyes, I have become like one who finds peace. This is, this is beautiful. She is defending the fact that she remained chaste until her wedding day. And now she is at peace in her marriage. This is incredibly beautiful to me. I know that pursuing holiness is out of fashion, but the case must be made for it. It so eloquently is, is depicted right here in the poetry of Song of Songs in the word of God. There's more to abstaining from, there's more to this than just abstaining from intimacy until marriage. That's a negative action. You could abstain from intimacy until marriage and still sin sexually. Rather, this is pursuing holiness, which is a positive action. I think that's partly why she rebuked her brothers this way. There's, I'm not just a wall. You're downplaying this. You're downplaying just how much it, just, just what lengths I went to to preserve my purity. Right? She, she is saying, that she pursued holiness, hence her use of the word towers. Otherwise, <laughs> that metaphor in verse 10 doesn't make any sense. She, she knows that the outcome here is peace and sexual peace is something that's totally missing from our culture. Ironic, isn't it? Because our culture at times seems sex obsessed. But what is completely missing from the picture and what is very seldom ever depicted in movies and narratives and songs is two people who pursue holiness and save sex until marriage. And the result, the result has 
peace. It's not perfection, but there is peace because there's not the distraction of comparison. There's not, there's not complications that come when you compromise purity. Now, if you have fallen in this regard personally, repent, get back up, and by the power of the gospel, be restored. If you've been compromising in this regard, be inspired by the example of the Shulamite woman, woman's integrity, defending her own honor now as a married woman and describing the peace that she has now in her intimate relationship with her husband. I know of recent false teachings in our midst around this that would compromise and downplay the severity of sexual sin, including pornography. I have to call us back steadfastly to the biblical standard. This is what Ephesians 5, 3 says, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talk uh, or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognized this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. The standard is incredibly high when it comes to purity, which means the question should not be asked, how far is too far? Rather, the objective should be to pursue holiness absolutely and not compromise at all with sexual sin. Again, if you have fallen in this regard, repent. And Ephesians 5, 5 will not describe you. That describes who you used to be. You used to be sexually immoral, but now having, been, having repented, you've been restored by the power of the gospel. And you likewise can know the kind of peace that the Shulamite woman is describing. Everything just works better God's way. Know this kind of peace, the intimacy of a marriage bed that the Shulamite woman describes when she says, so in his eyes, I have become like one who finds peace. Now, the vineyard imagery is going to come back later as we study Isaiah, but I want us to close the book out together because it's incredible. Verse 13, right? You who dwell in the gardens, the man says, companions are listening for your voice. Do you remember how she was in the garden in the beginning with the daughters of Jerusalem, the chorus? Let me hear you. The woman says, run away with me, my love, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. Everything that the lovers longed for in the beginning, now they abide in richly at the end. It's beautiful. And so the book closes just as it began. These words of love, describing the love between husband and wife, I have to once again show us how these bear parallels between the love that Christ has for his church and the love that this husband has for his wife. In verse six, she says, set me as a seal on your heart. This language is found elsewhere in the Old Testament. Look at Jeremiah 31, 33. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This 
Seal upon the heart is the same language that Paul uses to describe the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. You yourselves are our letter written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are Christ's letter delivered by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. This is a covenant by God to his Old Testament people, Israel, and to New Testament believers alike. See Jeremiah, see 2 Corinthians, and the same imagery is seen right here in Song of Songs as the covenant between husband and wife is described like a seal that is written on the heart. For love is as strong as death, she says. Jealousy is unrelenting as Sheol. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame. Our God is described as a consuming fire in the Old Testament. A huge torrent cannot extinguish love. This reminds me of Old Testament Israel crossing the parted Red Sea. Rivers cannot sweep it away. This to me runs parallel with Israel's second generation crossing the Jordan River while at flood stage. This is the kind of love that God has for his people. If you are a Christian, if you are saved today, this is the kind of love that God has for you. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is as unrelenting as Sheol. See our first sermon in Song of Songs for an explanation of what Sheol is. Love's flames are fiery flames, an almighty flame, a huge torrent cannot extinguish love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If a man were to give all his wealth for love, it would be utterly scorned. In the same way that the Shulamite woman rightly says that a man cannot purchase my love. In that same way, you and I, we cannot purchase the love of God. We cannot do anything to earn the love of God. And the love that God has for us is indistinguishable, a consuming fire, a mighty flame, as strong as death. Rivers cannot wash it away. Mighty torrents cannot extinguish it. It is the love that God has for his people. And it is similar to the love that this husband and wife have for one another. If you longing for love and not just romantic love and loneliness, but a loneliness in your soul because you know you need a savior. And if you wish that there were someone who could say such words about you, would you begin with letting these words be true about you spoken by God and his love for his people? If you need today to give your life to Christ, you could know a love that is stronger than death a love that could not be extinguished by the fires that you've been through, could not be extinguished by the fires of hell itself. It is the love that God has for his bride, the church. And if you get saved today, that's you. So if the Holy Spirit of God is drawing on your heart, I want you to pray with me right now and become the bride of Christ. If the Holy Spirit is drawing on you, this is the day. This is it, this is that moment. Don't postpone it. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Don't wait until it's convenient. It won't be. Give your life to Christ because he's drawing on your heart and you know it right now. You know that you are loved with a love that is stronger than death, that a fire, with, a, with a fire that is unextinguishable. Would you, would you respond to that love? Would you reciprocate that love for God by talking to him right now? I know that's awkward, but I wanna walk you through. I want you to pray with me God's word to God. God, apparently I believe in you because I'm talking to you. I believe in your love. I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, 
I would not die, but have everlasting life. I confess, O oh God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I confess, O oh God, that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, when you said that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no way I can come to God the Father except through Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. Would you say Jesus is Lord out loud right now? Say it, Jesus is Lord, and type it in the comments for good measure. God, I believe in my heart that you raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be loved with a love that is stronger than death, a love that is a consuming fire that cannot be extinguished by torrent or river. I want to be loved this way. I love you too, God. It's in your name pray, Jesus. Amen.